0: You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas begins a new series entitled Worship, starting with A Seven Sanctuaries. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now, here's today's teaching. Oh, worship the King of Glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. My hope is that this series of lessons on worship will intensify our experience of God help us to enjoy the richness of life that Christ came that we might have. Did you know that worshipers enjoy healthier lives than non-worshippers? Lots of surveys have been done. Yeah, people who go to church are healthier on the average. But I think we probably have a lot of questions about this. Maybe you're even skeptical. What can I learn about worship? I've read the entire Bible a couple of times. What else could there be? And after all, what, if anything, does the Old Testament have to offer Christians? Well, what disqualifies worship? How does true worship fortify lame spiritual lives? How does a New Testament worship differ from the Old Testament variety? These are all kinds of questions we might have. I mean, are we supposed to be following the Old Testament in church? How has the Christian church approached worship through the ages? And will it ever learn from its own history? Have our misconceptions about heavenly worship demotivated us? We had this image of praise and playing the harp and Falling down before God for all eternity, and we maybe are misunderstanding these images? You see, worship is defined as reverence offered to a divine being or supernatural power. It's the act of expressing such reverence. That's the big word, expressing, important. A form of religious practice with its creed and ritual. And worship is also defined as extravagant respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem. Well, when I consider that God is the object of our esteem, nothing seems too extravagant. Yet many people in the world who rarely have a spiritual thought think that they're worshiping. I love the way Tozer puts it. If you've never read his book, Whatever Happened to Worship, this thin volume is worth its weight in gold. He challenges all of us. It is a delusion to think that because we suddenly feel expansive and poetic in the presence of the storm or stars or space, that we are spiritual. I need only remind you that drunkards or tyrants or criminals can have those sublime feelings too. Let's not imagine that they constitute worship. So all mankind has feelings that are rooted in God's general revelation to us. It's not hard to be humbled by a hurricane, or, or to feel like getting low if uh, a tornado's coming or a lightning strike. But this isn't worship. We need to do a lot better than that. We need to look at the Bible. And this has been a really exciting project for me. I had no idea it would be. I was asked earlier in the year 2013 to study worship and to present two beefy classes on this at a Southeastern conference in Raleigh. Well, I did part one on worship in the Old Testament. Part two was worship in the New Testament and throughout church history. It went well. It was well attended. Maybe you were there, in which case, thank you for listening again. But we're going to expand this material quite a bit. Originally, two classes, now 10 lessons. And this project has continued to stretch me. I confessed it when I taught it before, but I've continued to work on it. And I'm deeper into the scripture into studying God's Word than ever. I think this is a great theme, a theme that can move us. On this first opening lesson, we're going to introduce the subject by looking at worship in the ancient world. I mean, what was religion like for Israel's neighbors? And then we're going to study the theme of sanctuary, holy place. We're going to look at seven sanctuaries in the Bible. In the ancient world, there were no well, certainly no shortage of worshippers. Remember the worshippers on Mount Carmel of Baal, the weather god, the thunder god Baal, we call him. It was the showdown, 1 Kings 18, between Elijah and Baal, between the true God and the false gods. You may recall that they worked all day, the pagans, dancing around. They were energetic. Uh, they were were noisy. They called on their God. And when nothing came, they were asking for rain because, after all, Bell was in charge of the weather. They were basically doing a rain dance. Nothing happened. So they take out their sharp instruments, their lances and their swords, their knives, and they cut themselves. They cut themselves. We know what happens. The endorphins are released. Maybe they feel closer to their God, but this is just psychochemical. And then Elijah, representative of the true God, prepares the broken altar and calls on the Lord to answer with fire from on he- from heaven. And at the end, everyone falls down. They realize that they've made a terrible choice in following Baal. And they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I love to teach from that passage. It's serious, but it's also somewhat comical. But the way those worshipers of Baal behaved does give us some insight into the ancient world. I visited the ruins of many temples. I remember being in a stone temple. And I was imagining the way the sound of singers and the musical instruments that the pagans employed in their worship would be ricocheting off the walls and the way the fire, the lights would uh, illuminate those walls, flickering, creating a certain ambience. Well, worship in the ancient world was not just energetic and musical, certainly was. But there were some things that were required that we should firmly reject. Well, all religions have sacrifice. But you know from reading the Old Testament that, that often the pagans required a human sacrifice. Well, most of the ancient peoples in the New World did the same. I'm teaching on world religions this year, and Part of our first module at my university is, is on the, the religions of the New World, North America, you know, Central America, South America. Human sacrifice goes back a long way, and and in the ancient Near East, especially infant sacrifice was desired. And why are there so many verses in the Old Testament telling God's people not to sacrifice their babies, you know, offering their firstborn son or, or daughter? to the Ammonite god Molech, who required that that firstborn child be incinerated as a way to prime the pump, to encourage the, the spirit so that in the future childbirth would be easy, agriculture would be successful. It's all hooked up, hooked up with pagan ideas of fertility and fruitfulness, infant sacrifice. There's so many verses. In the Bible, telling God's people, don't do it. I think of Leviticus 18, for example. Don't sacrifice your babies. I don't think we can just say, well, they were sincere back then. They just didn't know uh, the law of Moses. Oh, my goodness. Get a grip on what was going on in the ancient world. What was practiced in those temples? It's not just sacrificing babies, ritual prostitution, male prostitution, female prostitution even sacred prostitution where the king would would copulate with a, a priestess reenacting some primeval rite uh, it was deeply immoral much of what went on and worse it was manipulation i scratch your back because you scratch my back you make a sacrifice to the god and he gives you what you want you pray he answers you make a sacrifice, he smells that sweet aroma, and he says, okay, you fed me now, now I'm able to grant your wish. Manipulation, giving that we may receive. And that is characteristic not just of ancient religion, that's characteristic of of virtually all religions, and sadly, most versions of Christianity. But the religion of Israel stands in stark contrast to all the the noisy manipulation of pagan religion. I will share a passage from the prophet Isaiah. I'll be teaching from this soon with my wife. And um, I'm rereading it. As you know, it's the longest of the prophets. It was also the one that was most popular among the worshipers of the early church. And apparently even among the Jews. Yet the words are so stinging. Look at what uh, the prophet says. Look look, at what the the Lord says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that's how the, the prophet starts. The people of God are ignorant. They're in a state of rebellion. You'd say, well, as long as they go through the motions, does that matter? Oh, yes. Because biblical religion is not the religion of paganism, where you can sin all week and you put in a weekly appearance at church and get clean and then go back and live like everyone else. He says that they have forsaken him, despised him. I will just read some selections here uh, from Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now he speaks to the priests of Israel. He calls them, you rulers of Sodom. You give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? (laughs) Trampling. You can hear the hooves, the animal sounds. Animals are going to be sacrificed. But it's meaningless, just like Malachi 1. It's meaningless because the heart's not in it. God never accepted a religion just because it was a religion. Our lips might say the right thing, but our hearts would be far away. You recognize that passage from Jesus quoting it. Mark 7 quotes from, from Isaiah 29. Bring no more vain offerings. God says, pack it up. Go home. It's not worth it. It's empty. And then he continues, when you spread out your hands, that was the common position in prayer. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. That's a perfect parallel to Isaiah 59, verses 1, 2, and 3. Your hands are full of blood, so your sin separates you. I'm not going to listen to your prayer. Or Jesus said in Matthew 6, the pagans think they'll be heard because of their many words. But where is the heart? And then maybe the most familiar part of Isaiah 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And what does that mean? It means seeking justice. And then, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, if you are willing and obedient. And so God cares about the heart. It's not just believing there's one God, you know James 2:19. Satan believes and that God is one and he trembles. It's not just being a monotheist. You, you know what the scholars call it? The religion of Israel, which was so different. It was completely different to the religion of the nations. It wasn't. Firstly, it was monotheism and they're worshiping lots of gods and goddesses. But it's ethical monotheism. I know that's a mouthful, but ethical monotheism means you believe in one God and you believe that. Your actions must correspond to your faith. Your heart has to be right or the religion is unacceptable. Wow. And Why would that be? Because God is holy and God's desire has always been to live among his people. And so let's um, close this lesson introducing a theme. Maybe you've noticed this before. Maybe it'll be put in a fresh light then. It's the theme of sanctuaries in the Bible. A sanctuary is just a holy place. I find seven. In fact, when I was preparing all of this material for this series, I found a lot of sevens. Maybe I just made it come out to seven because of some prejudice on my part. See what you think. The first temple is the Garden of Eden. The rabbis thought of that original paradise as being like the temple, or let's put it this way. The uh, Jerusalem temple, in many ways, mirrors the the garden. Look at the, for example, the artwork of the temple. I know those chapters are somewhat tedious, the, you know, the, like the end of Exodus, you see the tabernacle. Uh, in First Kings, you read about the temple. But so much of the imagery comes from the garden. God is among his people. He walks among them. So it's all a holy place. But they are removed from the holy place because of sin, and, and sin because of God's holiness means he can't, he can't tolerate it, Habakkuk 1.13. So you have, the, you have Eden. The second sanctuary is the tabernacle, which is basically a portable temple, a mobile temple, God living among his people. These instructions in the, the last part of Exodus are all about construction of a, a portable temple— that in a matter of hours, minutes, I don't know how fast they could do it, would be disassembled, and the Levites would carry it away to the next place. That's a tabernacle. It's a tent. Tabernacle is never something built of stone. It's always something uh, that is portable. And finally, the temple, which David had hoped to build, but because he was uh, a man of blood, as it said, he'd taken part in all these wars, his son Solomon is the one who built it. David provided and kind of set things up. But this was one of the most important things that Solomon, the second king of united Israel, um, uh, carried out. So that's the temple and that incredible dedicatory prayer in 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 6, the temple. Well, But what happened with exile? Wasn't the temple destroyed by the Babylonians? Yes, it was. So... We've looked at Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, and it ends. Now, when God's people are away, they they want a place. They, they want to put together some kind of worship place in Babylon or Egypt. You know, in the, the Nile River, there's an island called Elephantine. And several hundred years before Christ, but, but after the, the time period of the Old Testament, the Jews built a temple. And they had their own priesthood. They were carrying out sacrifices. Or how about the Samaritans? The Samaritans were formed not by uh, the action of the Babylonian exile, but the Assyrian exile, which was earlier. Remember, they intermarried with uh, the people who were imported, deported from their countries, imported into Israel and uh, importing not only blood, but um, the ideas and the religions of all these people. Second Kings 17 is the key chapter. So the Samaritans are excluded. Uh, You know, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, They, they Tried to cooperate, but the motives weren't right. They were excluded. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. That's the thing that the Samaritan woman is referring to in John chapter 4. They built their own temple, but it was eventually destroyed by the Jews in in the second century B.C. So what was the fourth temple then? These other ones don't really count. Well, the temple was rebuilt, wasn't it? The preaching of Zechariah and Haggai propelled it forward. And finally, it wasn't as impressive as the old one. But the temple was rebuilt. And uh, a couple decades before Christ began his ministry, actually quite a few decades before, Herod the Great expanded it, almost replaced it stone by stone. But we still call the second temple Herod's temple. Then Jesus makes a remarkable comment. In John 2, he says, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. Now this was actually used against him in court uh, that you know, he had made some kind of treasonous you know seditious comment uh, under the rules of uh, homeland security uh, you know he, he was a real threat because he was going to cause trouble. But that's not what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about demolition, vandalism or terrorism. Jesus was talking about his body being the temple and that passage in John two makes perfect sense after the passage in John one that says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Some versions, unfortunately, say it dwelled among us or lived among us. A much better translation would be he tented among us. He pitched his tent among us. The tent, uh, the skene, the Greek word. It's the tabernacle. It's a direct allusion to the tabernacle, and it's not fixed in one place. It's portable. Jesus is on the go, right? But God lives among his people. So he was in Eden. When the tabernacle uh, was constructed, you have the cloud. When the temple is finished, it's filled up with the Shekhinah, the glory of God. Uh, God is present in the second temple. Christ's body has never been more uh, glorious than there. John 1, 17 and 18. So God uh, on earth, the incarnation, the central miracle of Christianity, that's the fifth temple. But then Jesus ascends, the Spirit's poured out, and his people embody his Spirit through whom he lives, making the church a temple. And that's 1 Corinthians 3. The church is a temple. Not only that, a city set on a hill, light of the world, that's what we're called to be. We're not always that, are we? But the church is a temple, not a temple of, of stones and mortar or anything like that. And then what is, in this case, the seventh sanctuary? God living among the people of the world through the church. Ultimately, the vision is this, the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down. And however you interpret that, it doesn't really matter. It says that out of heaven descends this incredible city, which is in the shape of The Holy of Holies. It's a perfect cube representing the intense, overwhelming, glorious presence of God. And there'll be no night because God is their light. He'll be our light all the time. And there's no temple because the whole thing is a temple. We're with God. Sanctuary in the Bible. What does this mean? It means there's a unifying theme for all of Scripture. Study the Scriptures. It means that God wants to live among His people. He always has. But that means among us, and we need to take more seriously, our status as God's holy people, God's temple, a sanctuary. That is really the basis for all worship. In the second lesson in the series, we're going to examine seven grand passages about worship. We hope you enjoy Douglas' teaching on worship. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.